there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope everyone celebrated in some fun way with friends or family or alone or whatever way you like to celebrate. I hope that you were able to do that this year. I always enjoy watching the ball drop, even just the last 10 seconds of it. Whatever channel I was watching this year, it wasn't the one with Ryan Seacrest. It was some other host. He said his name was Jonathan. I don't know his last name. I have no idea who he was. We turned it on just in time to see the ball drop. But just before the ball drop, they played John Lennon's Imagine, sung by some female singer who I'd never heard of before. And I will say that that is a really depressing way to go into the new year. And I understand that some people find those lyrics very meaningful. I find them vapid. But let's say even if you do find them meaningful, it's so slow. Why do we have to go into the new year with such a slow song? Is there nothing happier or peppier that can have a similar message? It wasn't even about the message. It was just, oh, that song is so slow and boring and it doesn't go anywhere musically. And that's what we were going into the new year with. I found that to be a very odd choice. Other than that, though, I had a fun New Year's Eve, and again, I hope you all did too. So I do want to talk about the New Year because everything I've seen for the past month or so, and I'm sure you've seen similar, whether it's on social media or non-social media, regular media, I guess, or talking with friends or articles, it's all about how bad 2020 has been and how excited we are for 2021. Don't get me wrong. 2020 was an odd year at best, and I know for some people it's been an absolutely devastating year between COVID and then all the effects of COVID having to stay home, not being able to go to work or see friends or family and businesses closing and people having to cancel vacations and shows and tickets to things, not to mention, of course, the people who have actually gotten sick and God forbid the people who have died. I totally understand that 2020 has been a terrible year because of all of those things. Plus, there were those murder hornets at some point, and then, of course, the election anxiety, whether or not the outcome was what you were looking for, the anxiety surrounding it, and the the vitriol from one side to the next. And then, of course, there were the riots over the summer. Kobe died in January. Does anyone remember that? That was big news, and that was pretty heart-wrenching. So by most accounts, absolutely, I understand why people are calling it a bad year. And I don't think anyone is in the wrong when they call it a bad year. I just want to explore the idea that like anything else in the world, whether something was positive or negative has to do with how we look at it. It's very easy to focus on the bad things from this past year. But there were also some good things on a world stage. There were the peace treaties that President Trump helped to negotiate between Israel and a variety of countries, the UAE, Sudan, Morocco, Bahrain, and I believe there was another one. And on personal levels, people got to spend more time with family. People, by staying home, learned new crafts and learned new hobbies. Of course, the vaccine was developed much more quickly than people anticipated, and I'm sure There are other good things as well on a grand stage, and a lot of the good things might also be on a on a small scale. I guess the question is, was there really more bad than good? And does the bad totally outweigh the good? It might, but that might happen in any given year. Some people, thank God, have been not super affected 
by the virus. Maybe they haven't gotten sick or their business wasn't affected. And then, and then some people have, and some people, no fam family members have died. Their businesses have been shut down. So there's been a variety of experiences this year. All that I'm wondering is last year could have been worse for some people. Maybe last year someone lost their spouse, you know, or their child died. And maybe this year to that person was better by comparison. I'm not trying to say that 2020 wasn't a difficult year. And I think part of the reason it was so difficult is because we were all sharing in this grand thing of our lives being totally and utterly changed and also taken over in a way, as opposed to on a regular year where we might have our own valleys of sickness or losing a job or financial troubles, whatever the case may be. So maybe 2020 was a net bad year. I'm not saying it isn't. What I am wondering about, though, is whether 2020 is truly an outlier or whether this is actually the norm and any year that's good maybe is the outlier. I know this doesn't feel like the norm because it's the idea of being things being closed down, schools being closed, businesses, etc. because of a virus is something that we are not used to and in many ways is unprecedented. What I am wondering is whether there aren't always such things that could devastate our lives and maybe it just matters how much we pay attention to them and what we choose to focus on and prioritize. It may be, God willing, that 2021 will be better and things will open up and we can go back to normal. And not a new normal, but just normal where we don't have to wear masks everywhere and kids can go to school and we can go to shows. We can hang out with our friends and any numbers that we want to and we can eat out and go shopping and go for runs and whatever it is, whatever the things that we used to do, we will be able to continue to do. What I am suggesting to you and to myself is that there are always going to be bad things, unfortunately, in our lives, and we can get mired down in them, or we can develop the kind of personality that allows us to focus on the good things, even when we are surrounded by bad things. I think this is a helpful perspective to have because there are always going to be bad things, whether they are on a national scale or a small scale. I do believe we have the choice about how we look at the world and whether or not we look at 2020 as a good year or a bad year. For instance, yes, 2020, there were a lot of things that were hard for me and things that had to I had to give up. Thank God, I know I'm so blessed because I was not affected in a way that many were. I thank God did not get sick. Nobody in my family has yet been sick. So I do know that I am blessed compared to many people. Despite that, I still can also focus on specifically good things this past year. For instance, I just recently got married and I got to spend the whole first year of, or most of the first year of my marriage with my husband instead of us going to work because we were stuck at home. So we had so much time together. I got to spend more time with my parents, whom I've lived away from since college. I got closer to a cousin of mine. I started this podcast. I learned how to knit, which is something I wanted to do for a long time. Again, I, I recognize that I've been so blessed, but it hasn't been an awful year. And I'm sure that's true for many people. I also know the opposite, unfortunately, is true for many people. And I'm not 
really telling people how to feel. That's not my business and not my job. I'm only pondering really how we as humans go on and go through life. And if something is bad or good, is that a, not bad or good, but positive or negative, is that an absolute? Or do we have the capability of choosing how we look at events so that we can find the good? That's all. It's just something that's been in my mind because everyone is talking about how ready they are for 2020 to leave and they're looking forward to 2021 as if changing the calendar is going to fix everything. But I don't think changing the calendar is going to fix everything. I think we have to look inside ourselves and when we can change our perspective and how we look at things and how we react to things, then things will get better. And maybe the fact just that people are hopeful about 2021 is already an indication that people are looking for the positives and will act more positively. But what happens when the first setback comes? I guess that's my question. How do we deal with setbacks? How do we confront them? Do we go on living our lives and learn to cope and figure out ways to thrive despite it? Or do we crumble? So that's my question on the new year. As this year ends and the new one begins, it's interesting timing because in the Jewish calendar or in the Jewish cycle, we are at the end of the book of Genesis this week and next week we start the book of Exodus. So I do want to talk about this week's Parsha. I think last week I neglected to, which I apologize because I did say that I would talk about the Parsha weekly. Last week I did a special on Christmas, so the schedule got a little bit messed up, but that always happens around the holidays, right? Anyway, so this week is the final chapter in the book of Genesis. And briefly, what happens in this Parsha is Jacob, well, I guess we have to go back briefly since I didn't talk about last week's Parsha. So Joseph and his brothers have reconciled in Egypt and all of the family, Jacob and his wives and all the kids move to Egypt and are living in Egypt. So in this week's Parsha, Jacob dies. But before he dies, he first gets his sons to promise him that they will bury him in Israel, in the Holy Land. He then blesses each of his sons, assigning to each of them a role. So if you are at all familiar with the different tribes, this is the Parsha where we get the idea that Naphtali is swift as a deer, and Benjamin is ferocious like a wolf, and we have uh, Yisachar, who are the scholars, and then Zavulan, who become the merchants, and how they, how those two tribes work in tandem, the scholars and the merchants. Also, Ruvain is rebuked for confusing his father's marriage bed because he, well, he did a couple of inappropriate things, including sleeping with his one of his father's wives. Shimon and Levi are rebuked for the massacre of Shechem, the person and then community who raped their sister. They reacted with a, oh, what's that term? Not equally. uh, You know what I mean. He did one small thing, small bad thing. They did a huge bad thing. So it was like unequal retribution. I don't know what the term is. You all know what I mean. Anyway, so that, um, and then Joseph also dies and also requests that he be buried in the land of Israel, but that does not happen right away. And his bones are not removed from Egypt until the Jews exodus from Egypt uh, several hundred years later. So that's the Parsha in a nutshell. Thank you to Chabad.org for the summary. One of the things that happens at the beginning of the Parsha when Jacob dies 
is all of Joseph's brothers go to him and say, our father said this on his deathbed, that you must promise not to take out your vengeance upon us for what we did to you all those years ago when we sold you as a slave. And as Jonathan Sachs points out, it's supposed to be very clear that what they're saying is a lie, that their father did not say that explicitly. And this is some, I'm going to be pulling from a book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs today, his uh, book, Essays on Ethics, a weekly reading of the Jewish Bible. And then back to my favorite Rabbi Joseph Tleshkin book, The Book of Jewish Values. So as Rabbi Sachs points out, and I will try to summarize this, I recommend reading it directly because, of course, he writes it much more clearly than I can summarize here, but I will do my best because I found it really fascinating and it did connect with what I've been reading in the book from Rabbi Tleshkin. So Rabbi Sachs points out that it was a clear lie that when the brothers said this, their father had not tried to make a promise that Joseph not exact retribution. But what was the purpose of the lie? The purpose was so that there would be peace among the brothers. And Joseph has already forgiven them. In last week's Parsha, there's no indication that the forgiveness was just because of his father and that he was only acting kindly to them because his father was alive. It's true forgiveness. And in fact, I believe it was Rabbi Sachs who pointed out last week that in that Parsha, we actually get the first example of true forgiveness and not just placating someone's anger, which was a concept more common in ancient cultures, but true forgiveness. So there's no indication that Joseph would act this way, but his brothers were still afraid, so they lied. To someone reading the Torah today, I think the idea of righteous people lying might be shocking because we are so used to the idea that honesty is the best policy, right? We learn it as kids. We really believe that honesty is of the utmost importance. And the point that Rabbi Sachs brings up is that honesty absolutely is very important. There's no denying that honesty and truth are super important value, but so is peace. One is permitted in Judaism to tell lies for very specific purposes. And this is where I'm going to go to Rabbi Teleshkin. So there are a few different exemptions on truth. One of the times it's permitted to tell a lie is to save a life and to use an extreme example because it's like the one that Rabbi Tleshkin uses in the book. If someone, if a German was hiding a Jew in their basement and a Nazi official came to the German's door and said, are you hiding a Jew? The German can lie and say no because they're trying to save the life of a Jew or the life of another person. Whether or not someone's Jewish isn't the important thing here. It's to save a life. So to save a life, we're allowed to lie. And he points out the example in the Torah, actually. It's in Exodus. Paro has commanded two midwives to help in his task of throwing all the newborn male Jewish babies in the Nile. They don't, these two midwives. And then Paro sees all these male babies are being born. So he comes to the midwives and asks them, why are you not doing this thing I told you to do? And the women, Shifra and Pua, say, oh, the Jewish women have babies without us. By the, They don't need midwives. By the time we get there, the babies are already born, so we can't throw them in the Nile. So once again, the midwives lied, but they were lying to save lives. And that is okay. Interestingly, I think Dennis Prager points this out, Shifra and Pua are 
women. They are not Jewish women, and they are two, there are two women whose names we know who don't come anywhere else in the Torah, and they are pointed out as heroes. And he points it out as proof that not only is the Torah not sexist, because these are women who are heroes, I mean, who are acting so ethically, possibly risking their lives. And so it's not only not sexist, it's also not racist, I guess is the term, because the Torah really is not interested in, or I should say the Torah is interested in good versus bad. So it doesn't matter whether the people doing good are Jewish or not Jewish. The important thing is that they were good people. So that's just a little interesting sidetrack. So, okay, so that's one time it's okay to lie. The other, one of the other exceptions, and this one's really interesting, and both Rabbi Sachs and Rabbi Talash can talk about it, is when it, so there was a debate between Hillel and Shammai. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Hillel and Shammai were two leading rabbis, and they had two different schools of thought, and they were often in conflict with each other when it came to deciding halacha and how things would work. We usually seem to fall on the side of Hillel. I think I talked about it when explaining how we light the menorah. We light one candle on the first night, two on the second night, three on the third night, etc. So we're counting up. That was an idea of Hillel. So this debate is between Hillel and Shammai about a bride. And the question is, if you're at a wedding, do you tell the bride that she is beautiful no matter what? Whether or not you think she's beautiful, are you honest? and say, no, bride, you're not beautiful, or do you lie? Hillel's opinion reigns because in this instance, even if you don't think the bride is beautiful, beauty ultimately is subjective. So you don't think she's beautiful, but clearly she's beautiful to the groom because if she weren't beautiful to the groom and beautiful both in terms of physical beauty but also inner beauty, he wouldn't be marrying her. So it might be a lie from your perspective because you don't think she's beautiful, but it's not a total lie because someone thinks she's beautiful. So not only is it not a lie, but it but it does sort of point out that truth is not always 100% objective. And I know we want it to be, but sometimes it's not. And whether or not someone's beautiful is not an objective truth. It's subjective, which was why I've never really liked the idea that everyone is beautiful because I don't think it's true that everyone is beautiful objectively, but I do think everyone is beautiful to someone because we don't all have the same tastes and we don't all prefer the same looks, but every one of us is beautiful to someone, whether that's romantically or to a parent or to a friend. So everyone is beautiful to someone. So that's one of the other exceptions. And then the final exception is, or exceptions, that it's okay to tell lies for reasons of humility, privacy, and not to harm another. And the not to harm another is really interesting. So if you've been invited to someone's house and you had an amazing time and then someone asks you, oh, how was it when you went to, you know, the Smiths, you're allowed to lie about how good a time you had in case you think that the friend who asks you is going to take advantage of the Smiths, which I think is super interesting. As both Rabbi Sachs and Rabbi Tlush can point out, truth is important, but when it impedes peace or when telling a white lie would increase peace between people. For instance, if you know two friends are fighting, but you tell both friends, oh, the other person is really sorry for what happened, then it's okay for that little white lie. So that's just a basic discussion on what is, is it ever okay to lie? And I think people who have any familiarity with religion or even 
with Western thought, or maybe world thought, actually, will think, no, it's never okay to lie. And it's interesting that Judaism makes these exceptions. So then Rabbi Sachs goes into it further. So Rabbi Sachs explains from another thinker, Sir Isaiah Berlin, that not all values coexist in a kind of platonic harmony. And now I'm quoting directly from the book. His favorite example was freedom and equality. You can have a free economy, but the result will be inequality. You can have economic equality, communism, but the result will be a loss of freedom. In the world as currently configured, moral conflict is unavoidable. So truth is the most important thing. Peace is also the most important thing. Freedom is the most important thing. Equality is the most important thing. All of these things are the most important thing. They're all morally important and they're all good values in an ideal world. In a world that is completely godly and perfect, all of these moral truths can coexist. As Rabbi Sachs puts it succinctly, the existence of conflicting values means that the kind of morality we adopt and society we create depend not only on the values we embrace, but also on the way we prioritize them. So it's not saying truth is not a value, lying is okay. It's about how we prioritize them. Is truth the most important or is peace a little bit more important or does it depend on the situation? And as I said, definitely read this for yourself and then look into it further. I was just really fascinated by this idea that Rabbi Sachs brought up that it is challenging that we have these conflicting ideals and then figuring out what is most important and how to reconcile them in our own lives and in the lives of our nations. He mentions that Judaism values peace above truth. And so when it comes to interpersonal relations or even relations between countries, if peace is the most important, maybe sometimes you have to be dishonest. And maybe he's not, I guess I shouldn't say exactly what he's telling people to do. And maybe he's not even giving advice. He's just explaining that things are in conflict, which I guess is the most interesting thing to me. It's just the idea that things are in conflict and things that we might think of as black and white are not always so black and white. I think we all want things to be black and white. I don't think it matters what religion one is or what political persuasion one is or what country one's from. I think people want things to be black and white because it's easier. And maybe once in a while there are things, I shouldn't say once in a while, there are things that are certainly black and white in terms of morality, but there's also a ton of gray area. And the older I get, the more I realize how true that is, which is probably one of the reasons why we're reminded again and again, not to judge other people. And if we are to judge, to judge people favorably and to love our neighbor as ourselves, because maybe God can see, you know, the absolutes and he can judge people for their actions and their morality. But most of us do not have anything close to the understanding to make judgments or pronouncements about how other people act. So anyway, just a little thought on conflicting morality and things not always being so clear cut and black and white. I don't know if that's helpful for the beginning of a new year. Maybe for the start of the new year, people just want something positive and uplifting and something inspiring. But I personally am intrigued by things that make me think and make me question what I think I know because so much of what I think I know, I don't or I don't know fully. So here's to a year of learning new things and having an open mind so that we can learn new things, be open to new ideas, and to 
new experiences and be open to people who are different than we are and and all the other blessings of a new year. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!